0: I invite you all to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 19, starting in verse 1. I plan to stay focused on Matthew for the rest of the summer. We'll see if the Lord has other plans for us. He did the last couple months. But today, it's Matthew 19. Matthew 19 marks the beginning of a new section... In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has finished his fourth major block of teaching that we finished last time and is now headed towards Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, he runs into several different people and has some significant interactions with them, which we might call today teachable moments. Today, it's some Pharisees and they have a test for him on his theology of marriage. Some Pharise- let me say that again, some Pharisees have a test for Jesus on his theology of marriage. How do you think that's going to go? Here's a life hack for you, a pro tip for living. Never try to lay a trap for Jesus unless you like falling into your own traps. Let me read the first two verses to you, and then we'll pray and get into this passage together. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know what's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. We've sung about it for the first half of this service. He doesn't become our Savior without going to Jerusalem and all of what that means. Coming down out of Galilee where He was relatively safe and going to where Herod rules, where Pilate rules, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin are in power, where there's so much against Him. And He did that for us. We thank you for that, and we pray that we would listen to what he says this morning. Because he wasn't just speaking to them, it's recorded here so that he speaks to us. So help us to have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. I pray this, I, I pray for help to do that, that I would not get in the way, that my words would align and Bring forth Your Word so that we can hear from You. Use me if you can. Work around me if you must. But speak to Your church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem. You and I know what is going to happen there. Jesus knows what's going to happen there. He's predicted it already. But for everybody else, they're still kind of in the dark. They just don't get it. Everybody. In verse 1, Jesus finishes his teaching on humility and being great in the kingdom and God's love for the little ones and the importance of resolving our conflicts and forgiving one another, everything we've seen the last several times we've been in Matthew. And then he leaves the north and he heads south towards Jerusalem and the crowds begin to form. Everywhere he goes, he's a rock star. Everywhere he goes, the crowds form. And as He has done throughout the book, Jesus heals the sick in those crowds. And then in verse 3, some Pharisees come, and they see the good work that Jesus is doing, and they see how the crowds are following Him, and they are convinced by His words that He is the Messiah, and they bow before Him and lead the nation to follow Him themselves. Just kidding. LOL. That's not at all what they do. That's what they should have done, right? If you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew, it's clear what you should do with this Jesus. But that's not at all what they do. No, they come to Jesus and they try to trap Him. Who do they think they are? Verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Him to test Him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Let's give Jesus a test. See if he passes. Now, folks, this is not, they are not sincere with their question. They're not asking this question to find out the truth. They have an agenda with their question. You ever been asked a question? You know there's an agenda? They want to trap Jesus. How does that trap work? What are they thinking? Well, you need to know that there was a big debate during this time about the theology of divorce. There were two major schools of thought among the rabbis. The school of Rabbi Shammai and the school of Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shammai said that God requires divorce only in the case of adultery. But Rabbi Hillel said that God allows divorce any time a man is unhappy with his wife. Even if she burns the dinner or her eyebrows get too bushy. That's actually in the, what the rabbis talked about. See, they were, they were debating over Deuteronomy 24.1, which says, if he finds anything indecent in her, a divorce is appropriate. Okay? And so Shammai says, well, anything indecent in the context, that's obviously adultery. And Hillel says, well, in the context, anything indecent. Let's just fill that up with however we want. So Pharisees say, okay, Jesus, which side are you on? If you side with Rabbi Hillel and anything goes, doesn't that contradict what you said in the Sermon on the Mount? And where does it all end? But if you side with Rabbi Shammai, and I think that's what they hope he'll do, then you might get into trouble with Herod Antipas. Remember Herod Antipas? Not Antipasto, Antipasta, but the king who put John the Baptist to death. Why? Because John spoke out about his divorce. Remember that? John the Baptist, he made a pronouncement about some divorce being against God's law. You shouldn't do that, Herod. Well, into prison you go. And then off with your head. So the Pharisees think they've trapped Jesus. They've got him on the horns of a dilemma. Maybe they've even stumped him. Can Jesus answer this stumper of a question? What do you think? <laughs> I've entitled this message The Lord of Marriage. Because Jesus is not just the Lord of the Sabbath. And He's not just the Lord of all the other things we've seen Him master in this book. Leprosy and disease and, and even death, right? Or the law. He's also the Lord over marriage. Not only does Jesus have a theology of marriage, his theology flows from his own authority. Let me say that again. Not only does Jesus have a theology of marriage, his theology flows from his own authority. He is Lord. The Pharisees obviously don't recognize this, or they wouldn't be asking the question in this way, but that's their mistake. Jesus pushes back, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied. It's always a sick burn when Jesus says, haven't you read your Bible? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. (laughs) They think they've got him stumped. And he says, hmm, tough question. I think the answer to that one's on the first page of your Bibles. Haven't you read it? Guys, I think you're missing the point. Let's go back and look. What does Genesis say? So Jesus leads them on a Bible study of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Jesus is saying that they are starting in the wrong place with their questions. It's like when you ask a question and the the answer says, wrong question. Right? You don't ask the questions. I'll ask the questions. Have you read your Bible? We'll see that they are starting, and we have seen that they're starting in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus says, you've got to go back further than that, or you'll be missing the point. And speaking of points, I have three this morning from today's message. Here's the first. Trust the designer to define marriage. Trust the designer to define marriage. Look at verse 4 again. Haven't you read, he replied, That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. See, marriage is God's idea. God designed it. It's not something that we came up with on our own. It came from, verse 4, the Creator, the Designer, the original Lord of Marriage. Marriage is God's idea, and so we should get our ideas of what marriage should be from Him. Make sense? Obviously, this flies in the face of so much of our modern culture, including among Christians. We want to define marriage our own way. We want to do what we want to do with it. And we figure that God, if He exists, just has to be okay with that. But that's exactly wrong. He is the Lord of marriage. We need to listen to Him. This passage, verses 4 through 6, is very relevant to a whole host of contemporary issues and questions. It addresses marriage and also divorce. It also addresses same-sex marriage and transgenderism, doesn't it? It has implications for those. Because Jesus says, Genesis 1 says, that humans are made male and female. Remember when we talked about this back in February? Two biological sexes, different and complementary, male and female, not interchangeable, not changeable. And it was tov. It was good. And then he says, and here's what marriage is. Jesus says that Genesis 2 says that a man, one man, this passage addresses bigamy and polygamy too, one man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, one biological woman, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So here's God's math. One plus one equals one, right? One man and one woman come together to be one flesh. That's the design. Do not believe it if people tell you that Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage. Jesus said, I agree with Genesis. The Creator has designed marriage and it is told. It is good. By the way, this passage also addresses cohabitation, doesn't it? Living together as if you're married when you aren't. That's not how God designed the one flesh relationship. The one flesh relationship is for a husband and a wife, he says. Two people who have deprioritized all all other loyalties, leaving father and mother. And then reprioritized each other, clinging to his wife. And their new number one loyalty on earth is each other. So they've actually formed a new entity, a new family, a new unity. Jesus says so they are no longer two but one. That's what marriage is. And that's where sex belongs. I know you wouldn't know it from looking at the culture. But sex belongs in marriage. That's where it goes. This kind of marriage. One flesh means more than just sex. But it doesn't mean less. Two bodies coming together in sexual intimacy is for marriage by God's design. Now I say trust the designer to define marriage because I want to emphasize that When we obey the Lord of marriage, we are trusting that He knows best. Because it doesn't always seem that way. This is Pride Month, right? You see it everywhere you go. I know that some people have same-sex attraction. Persistent same-sex attraction. And they want to marry somebody of the same sex. And it feels like that would be really good to them. I understand that. Maybe you feel that way today. Or maybe you know somebody who feels that way. I understand that. But that's not how the Creator designed marriage. That's not what marriage is or what it's for. And the Lord of marriage is calling us to trust Him to do things His way. And there we'll find blessing. And I know that some people suffer from gender dysphoria. They feel great unease about their own bodies. They would rather be the other sex than they were born. I empathize with that pain. It must be very great, and I do not pretend to know the half of it. Maybe you feel that. I have the greatest compassion for you. I know that hurts. But I also know that my Creator is good, and His design for His creation is good. It's what's best. And I know that I can trust Him. And I know that some people are wary of marriage. They think it's just a piece of paper. They've seen the ravages of divorce. They want to make sure that this person they want to be with is the right person And so they want to test drive the relationship and live like they're married before they're married just to make sure. And there are unfortunately in some cases financial benefits to living together instead of getting married. I know it feels right. And our culture says it's fine. But that's not how God designed it. That's going against the grain of the universe. As is polygamy. And as we'll see is divorce. Jesus is asking us to trust the Lord of marriage and do it his way. You see his application? It's in verse 6 at the end. Don't rush. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Or here's how I put it. Don't rush to amputate what the Lord has stitched together. What God has joined together, let man not separate. What has God joined together here? Well, he calls it one flesh. Now, that's just a metaphor. But what a metaphor it is, right? It's like one man surgically sewn together with one woman to form a new unity. And after a surgery, heals, what do you got? You just got one entity, right? Who's the surgeon? What God has joined together. See, marriage is not just something that two people do to themselves. It's not even just something that the state does to two people. Jesus says that God puts people together into marriages. So we should be very careful about pulling them apart. Do you see how this answers the Pharisees' question? They wanted to know, when is it okay to divorce? And Jesus says, divorce, oh, that's never okay. That's never best. That's never good. It's it's not Tov. Divorce wasn't the idea. Divorce wasn't the design, the intention. Don't do that if you can at all help it. Don't just amputate what the Lord has stitched together. Now I know that this is a painful subject for many people here. We have all been touched by divorce in our families. And many of you have experienced divorces personally. I look out on this crowd and I, my heart just goes out for every single one of you who has gone through it. I know this is painful. For some of you, it's painful because you didn't want it, but it happened to you anyway. For some of you, it's painful because you know you did it wrong and you feel the weight of that. For some of you, it's painful because it's happening to you right now. You're in the middle of it. You're either considering it or you're waiting for the ink to dry. For some of you, most of you, you feel some degree of shame. Even if you didn't do anything shameful in the whole process, you still feel shame put on you by others. Even what I've said so far this morning might seem to pile it on further. I've been praying that you would feel grace this morning, even as you heard the truth. There is confusion and there is hurt. When you let someone into your life so they get all the way to one flesh, and then that relationship breaks and becomes jagged, it's got to hurt. Being in conflict and estranged and eventually divided from the person who is the closest person to you has got to hurt and have lingering effects. I know that divorces are painful. And so does the Lord. And divorce, even sinful divorce, is not the unforgivable sin. Sin. And not all divorces are sinful, at least on one side, as we'll see in verse 9. But Jesus is saying that divorce should be avoided if at all possible. We should be extremely reluctant to divorce. Because what God has joined together is something that we should not be separating. That's not how it was designed Marriage was not designed to be temporary. Well, just give this a try for a little bit. See what that's like. No. That's why the, the old marriage ceremony that the Anglicans put out says it needs to be entered into not lightly. Marriage was to be dissolved in its original state only by death. the Pharisees have a comeback they're not done yet they don't realize that they've already lost this debate and they whip out Deuteronomy 24 1 which was their text all along and they think that they've answered him you ever you ever have a debate with somebody and they're like yeah but what about this right and you know it's just this tiny little thing it doesn't mean anything well that's what they're doing look at verse 7 why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Huh, Jesus? Huh? Riddle me that. Answer, that one. Jesus replied, you numbskulls. It's in the original Greek. Yeah. No, no I added that part. He was a lot kinder. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Notice that word permitted. Here's where Jesus differs from Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai believed that he he thought if there was adultery in the the marriage on one of the partners, then God required a divorce. you got to do it. Moses commands it. No, Jesus says. God, through Moses, permitted a divorce in those cases because of hard hearts, but he didn't command them. You don't have to divorce, even when there's been sexual immorality. Because that's not the way it was in the beginning. The design was for permanence. Marriage was built to last. Yes, we've messed it all up. Hard hearts, lots of sin, lots of covenant breaking. Yes, divorce gets allowed. Even polygamy gets allowed for a time. But that wasn't the design don't rush out and give a, get a divorce. Make every effort. Make every effort. Make every effort you can to salvage the thing. I know that's not what the world says. The world rushes to divorce, and so do many professing Christians. And again, there are solid reasons to divorce, as we'll see in verse 9. But if you have divorced for the wrong reasons, and if you've divorced for the wrong reasons, there is plenty of grace at the cross for all repentant sinners. There's plenty of grace at the cross for all repentant sinners. Maybe that's what you just need to hear this morning. There's plenty of grace at the cross for all repentant sinners. But also hear this. The Lord of marriage says, don't rush to amputate what I have sown together. Make every effort. Divorce should be a last resort. Remember the last chapter? Remember the amazing grace of forgiveness? How much we've been forgiven, which gives us the power to unleash much forgiveness into our relationships? Make every effort, because, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now you hear the exception there. And there's at least one other exception that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 7. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. But the emphasis in verse 9 isn't on the exception of sexual immorality. The the Greek is pornea, from which we get our word porn. And it means all kinds of covenant-breaking marital sexual unfaithfulness. But notice the exception the emphasis is not on the exception in that verse. The emphasis is on the fact that if you divorce and remarry for the wrong reasons, you're committing adultery. You're breaking the seventh commandment. You're badly amputating what the Lord has sown together. Now, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, and so the, what, do we, what do we know about every page about the Gospel of Matthew? Keep your eye on the ball. What is the ball? Who is Jesus, right? Jesus is a theological biography. Notice these three little important words in verse 9. Notice whose word this is. He says, I tell you. Don't miss that. That's super important. Remember, this is the gospel of Matthew. Keep your eye on the ball. Who does this guy think he is? He thinks he's the Lord of marriage. Not just the Creator back in Genesis 1 and 2, but this Middle Eastern Jewish man standing in front of these Pharisees that are questioning him, he thinks he's authoritative over marriage. Like, on the, like the Sermon on the Mount, Moses said this, but I tell you. Jesus says so. Don't do it, he says. Don't divorce for the wrong reasons. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Now there is an exception here, and it's a true one. If one spouse falls into marital unfaithfulness, into this pornea, they are in that moment ripping up the surgery themselves and defacing the one-flesh relationship. If your spouse has done that to you, you are permitted by the Lord of marriage to divorce them. Permitted, not commanded. Even then, I'd still say, make every effort. Make every effort. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Because we know that our marriages are pictures of Christ and His church. And if we can salvage those pictures, they can be, still be wonderfully beautiful pictures of Christ and His church. We should be extremely reluctant to throw away any pictures of Christ and the church. It is permitted, especially if they are unrepentant about their pornea. If they are amputating what the Lord has stitched together, you certainly don't have to pretend that all is well. But the Lord of marriage wants us to do everything we can to uphold it. Now the disciples overreact to what Jesus has just taught. The Pharisees are done. They don't have anything more in this story, but the disciples are like, what? What? What what did Jesus just say? The disciple, Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. I'm pretty sure that was Peter who said it. Right? Sounds like him, doesn't it? Peter was married already. He knew that marriage was a lot of work. And now Jesus says that it's for better, for worse, and for keeps. You might feel trapped in a marriage if it's for life, a life sentence. I don't feel that way, by the way. June 18th, 25 years. Woo! She's a saint. She, did I get an amen for that? She's a saint. But you might feel trapped in a marriage if it's for life. What's fascinating is that even though this is a rash overreaction on the part of the disciples, Jesus basically says, yeah, that's right for some people. For some people, it is better not to marry. Look at verse 11. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There's three kinds. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage or become eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So surprisingly, our last application point is this. Seriously consider celibacy for the kingdom. Seriously consider celibacy for the kingdom of God ironically the lord of marriage says that marriage is not for everyone some people are at least for a time and some for a lifetime called to celibate singleness and it's not strange we think that's so strange right we think that's so hard oh celibacy is so hard but jesus says marriage is so hard celibacy is just a different kind of hard you know what's hard? Being born a eunuch. Being celibate because your body came out that way, broken in a broken world. What's hard is being celibate because somebody did that to you. It's actually much easier to choose to live the celibate lifestyle than to have it forced upon you. And what if you choose it for the kingdom? Did you, did you, That's quite a phrase there in verse 12, isn't it? Because of the kingdom of heaven. Just ponder that this afternoon. I read a quote yesterday from Douglas O'Donnell that really struck me. He said, the kingdom of heaven is so important that it should seem perfectly normal if someone would want to give up marriage for it. If you wouldn't give up marriage for the kingdom of heaven, you don't understand what the kingdom of heaven is. It's a treasure. Surpassing all others. There are a bunch of reasons why it can be advantageous for the kingdom for you to stay single. At least for a time. And for some, a lifetime. And if you're called to it, embrace it. And use it for God's full glory while you have it. The one who can accept this, Jesus says, should accept this. And those of us who are married right now, at some point, all of us will be bereaved. It's very few like Becky's mom and dad who died on the same day, right? At some point, one or the both of us will be single. Those of us who are married right now should celebrate those who are single right now for the kingdom. I think that all too often we have treated singles as second-class kingdom citizens. But that's totally wrong, according to the Bible. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. He says single Christians are first-class kingdom citizens if they are living for the Lord. And this church has an awesome history of having wonderful single people in it serving the Lord. There are many of you right here in this room today. If you are single right now and serving the Lord, thank you. Thank you for being celibate. Thank you for being devoted. Thank you for using your singleness for the kingdom of God. You know what? You, you know who you're like? You're like the apostle Paul. And you're like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ironically, the Lord of marriage never got married himself. And he was as fully human as ever a man was, as ever a human was. Or perhaps it might be better to say the Lord of marriage is still engaged to be married to his church, his bride. And we await the wedding supper of the Lamb when all earthly marriages will be over and we will all have in full what they all pointed to in part, the relationship between the Lord of marriage and his church. And what a glorious day that was. If you can accept it, accept it. Let's pray together.